Welcome to Navigating the New Normal, Grant Thornton's podcast exploring trends in business and the marketplace. Today I'm joined by Ian Renwood, our Head of Tech, Media and Telecommunications. It's quite timely that we're having a chat now about data analytics with two of the world's largest data companies, Facebook and Google in Australian News. So welcome, Ian. Thanks, Therese. Nice to, nice to be talking to you. Fantastic. Now, Ian, consumers use these two huge platforms every day to socialise and to search, but both are inherently data businesses. For those of us who aren't in the know on the jargon, what does that actually mean? It means that they derive an overwhelming majority of their uh, revenue from the collection and the analysing and the leveraging of the data um, on, on the various individuals and organisations that use, interrogate, go through their websites uh, and other you know ways they engage via Gmail, etc. So, for example, the highlight one is really Google, which has been the exemplar of this and has been for well well over a decade or more now. And um, in 2019, they generated $162 billion US in revenue, and almost 85% of that came from um, analytics around the advertising, AdWords, and a whole bunch of um, other um, revenue streams off the back of the advertising. And the reason it was such a strong performer for them was their suite of analytics tools that they use internally to be able to interrogate, as I said, position the right advertising at the right time for the, to the right person is a significant enabler for them and a competitive advantage. And that's why 85, I think 85.6% of their revenue came out of uh, data and analytics related insights. So what you're kind of describing there is, sounds a bit like Uber personalization. Is that inherently what it comes down to? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. You know, they they know they, they everything. What what where they've managed to achieve great success is <clears throat> so much of their um, advertising that's positioned to us is is contextualised. So at the right time of the right day, um, you get advertising that's relevant to what you might be searching or looking at. And um, they were one of the first, um, if not the first, um, firm to be able to to generate such targeted advertising. So <clears throat> you would have noticed that if you if you go online and you're you're searching something around um, let's just say the COVID-19 vaccine um, you know the next time you might might do a Google search you, you might have a whole bunch of you know um, medical centers and health clinics pop up um, that are targeted towards you and things like that people will have seen when they've gone in and perhaps Google the price of a new car they're looking at buying it the next you know few times you'll be going on various sites um, you'll be seeing a whole bunch of you know car advertising and other related mechanical products and services so it's um it's no mistake that they're, 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 they're so well targeted and it's one of the reasons why advertisers uh, tend to flock to them and their, their advertising tends to be a lot better targeted than even others such as Facebook and that although have a very successful platform platform globally, um, Google seem to have the edge or do have the edge when it comes to the application of their data and analytics and, that, and those algorithms that uh, drive the targeting and the insights for their advertising. So I find it really interesting. We have these really huge data powerhouses. So how did that actually happen? Does size, at least in this case, matter? Um, yes and no. Um, size is... Size is what enabled organisations such as Google and other technology players to become 
to, to, to develop more insights um, into the organisation, into individuals that interact with their organisation. But you know, further than that, um, the need to do that has driven a lot of innovation around algorithms and data and analytics in Google. Um, many of those data analytics um, services and capabilities are now much more broadly available. And I, if you go back 10, 15 years, you look at things like LinkedIn. So LinkedIn was a great example that there was no there was no um, database available at the time that was required to support all, all those millions and millions at that stage of contacts. So they developed their own database technology. So, and which has now led to, you know, no SQL database, you know, amongst LinkedIn and a couple of other players in that market led, led to the innovation around no SQL databases. A similar things happen with Google and some of those data platforms in that there's a whole bunch of um, algorithms that have now been commercialised and are more, more broadly available that wouldn't have come about if it wasn't for the need to innovate and interrogate their own data. So that, that, that means that a lot of mid-size and even much smaller companies these days have access to um, tool sets at not a lot of money, comparatively speaking. You don't need to be a large bank or a large airline with you know petabytes of data and you know large teradata farms costing you know tens if not more millions of dollars to be able to interrogate the data that your customers bring to to you and your organization and get better insights into them how they interact with you so you can better serve them and even look at ways to acquire them so there's been very much um, a flow down um, of the, uh, that technology it's really available to all businesses now even up to it and including you know the, the corner store and most of us realize that when you, you go and buy a coffee or a cup of tea there are a whole bunch of apps and that you can use to you know um, go five times and get one free that sort of thing and that a lot of that's enabling them to collect data on you and your and your usage so they can better predict times that people come to their shop the kind of things they're ordering and there's a whole raft of benefits they get out of that without even necessarily needing to know um, you know Therese or Ian is the end customer. When you're talking to clients or maybe some of the non-typical suspects <laughs> Um, is this something they realise or are they surprised by it that there's all this information at their fingertips? Um, they're almost always invariably surprised by it. There was a, a large company I visited 18 months ago and um, I won't mention them but they were running a pretty significant manufacturing plant um, and they're all these wonderful German-made engineering machines. And as an, as an engineer by training, I, I, I got you know quite excited about all these beautiful, clean engineering machines pushing out their product every you know so many product imprints per second. And I said, "Wow, you've got a lot of data you're gathering here. Could I, I could see the data logger going crazy, all the data it was gathering on, on on the plant." And I said, "Where does it go? What do you do with it?" And he said, "I don't know, mate. Don't know." So they're actually gathering all this wonderful data that can be used for understanding quality control, um, you know, mean, 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 mean time between, you know, breakdown and failure of their, of their, of their plant and equipment and a whole raft of other things um, that they just, just weren't leveraging. And but you still had the, the you know the the, type, uh, the 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 shift leader was still manually logging some of the key information they needed to capture how many widgets an hour and you know wastage and all that, which is great, but. 90% of that information was available online via their, their, their machines and, and a whole raft of other data that they just didn't even know existed. So every organisation is collecting data right now, even if they don't know it, on their customers, their suppliers, um, their interactions with their accountants, their banking details that most of them are not aware of, and if they are, they don't know how to use it. This is a brilliant segue because you and I have spoken before about how terrible Australia's track record is when it comes to commercialising tech. Does the same go with how we commercialise our data? 
uh, it, it does. The, you know, if you go back a few years, say eight, eight years, when the whole startup world really started to get up ahead of steam in Australia, and you know, it had a number of startup innovation hubs being established in Melbourne, you know, Sydney, and elsewhere. Um, a number of those organisations going into there were innovative data analytics type companies. And one example of that is is Data Republic, which has become quite a great strand success story. Um, there are others that weren't necessarily in those hubs, but there's, you know, Data 61, which was spun out of CSIRO. So like in most areas, from medical technology to manufacturing to agriculture, Australia is um, is still and always will be, it seems, at the forefront of innovation, but we're not very good at taking it to the next level, the next stage, and commercialising it. What that's, what that's meant is, over the last half a dozen years or so, those firms that have had some great analytics idea or some algorithm, they've tended to package it up in something that's consumable. So instead of them going out and selling algorithm X to a whole bunch of banks or, you know, travel industry organisations, um, they've actually thought of a pain point in an industry and they've leveraged their algorithm to actually solve for that pain point, for that problem. So the reg tech market, which is which is quite hot, and the ag tech market as well, are two examples there where you've got a lot of really smart, you know, AI and other data analytic solutions, but they're being wrapped up in a solution that they can roll out a cloud environment that enables that AI to be leveraged to provide, you know, to solve a pain point in, in, a, in a specific industry. So they've got a lot more applied in their in leveraging the algorithm than they were eight years ago, whereas eight years ago they were more esoteric and theoretical. They've learnt the lesson and they've, they've become more applied around how do I solve a problem? How does our unique thinking or our unique algorithm solve a customer care problem in this industry or solve a medical or a healthcare problem or, or broader, you know, regulatory problem when it comes to the reg tech organisations? What I find really interesting about your background is you've worked for IBM in the past. And in addition to your consulting role here at Grand Thornton, you also mentor a number of startups. So you've really seen beneath the hood of big tech, mid tech, startup tech. Um, how, like, are there differences in how things are progressing or what they're focusing on, the speed of change, or are there common themes between all those different sizes and, and the different levels of startups? They're largely common themes. So if you if you take a big four bank in Australia or their equivalents overseas, um, a lot of the data analytics are, go, are going into two key areas. One is customer insights, so how they engage upon the, the relationship with the customer in a more effective, efficient way, which can you know add additional products per customer, but it can also increase their efficiencies and take costs out of that of that relationship. And the other key area is. Um, uh, protecting the bank, protecting the organisation. So there's a huge amount of money that's spent on um, compliance around regulatory needs from APRA, the RBA, other regulators uh, um, about how they get insights, how they look at their, their, you know, their capital adequacy, how they look at you know anti-money laundering, how do they know their customer effectively to minimise the instance, instances of money laundering and that sort of thing. So. Um, it's, it's still quite narrow, the application of data analytics, even in the big four banks. I mean, they've got large data science departments and some very, very capable chief data officers and that, but they, they really haven't gone beyond a lot of those well-known use cases that I've just outlined. So that being leveraged for innovation at the grassroots not as strong as a lot of those organisations would like, which is one of the reasons the big four banks have been so passionate about getting involved in 
you know, some of those startups because they're trying to find ways to leverage interesting solutions that, that based upon data and, and technology that can improve the bank and, and, and you know, transform it. For, for example, one of the major challenges they've got is innovation within the bank. Um, and a good way to acquire innovation on that is to go and look in the marketplace. And if somebody's been successful applying their algorithm or their AI on this industry or that industry, taking it into the bank and, and using those insights to, to solve a similar problem that's exponentially larger to, you know, um, petabytes potentially of data or, or definitely terabytes of data. Uh, and there are tens of hundreds of thousands of customers versus a few thousand or a few hundred that the startup would normally do can really give them significant scale. Often to go and do that innovation internally runs into so many, you know, um, you know, you know brick walls or, uh, you know, compliance or other issues um, or allocation of scarce resources about, you know, we need, to, we need to dice and slice our customer usage to find out what our net promoter score is, things like that. And they, they are understandably high priorities and day to day about how they run the bank. But by going out to the market and by un uncovering um, innovative startups that are using data in different ways, they can leverage that and bring it into their bank and, and, and really scale it up and get, you know, as I said, exponential benefit for their own organisation. Now, technology has a very well-earned reputation for moving at a rapid pace. Maybe more so for um, clients or companies who are thinking about putting it off. Uh, what is the risk of not jumping on the data analytics bandwagon right now? Um, there's a significant risk if you don't do it um, and leverage it because if, no, if, if your competitor is not doing it now, they will be shortly. Uh, and I think a lot of that's been expedited by the whole COVID-19 scenario where um, organisations have been forced to undertake data analytics type programs to really understand their customers and to do the best possible way they can to engage, service their needs in, in a very remote virtual environment. So I think um, there's been a lot of innovation or haste that's been driven in leveraging DNA off the back of COVID because of, of the physical constraints. Um, but there is still opportunity for people to get in there and understand what data they collect, how to leverage it, how it's architected, and how they can access it in an efficient way. Um, so, um, but I wouldn't leave it for too much longer because everybody's starting to move uh, and, and exploit it all the way from the corner store up to you know the, the global you know bank like an HSBC or. Or, or whoever. Um, so the time to move it now is now, and if you're not already doing it, you should be doing it, but um, there still is time to, to you need to crack on um, and, and, and move in that direction. The other, the other area I would mention is, um, so the, there's the risk of not doing anything um, around being, you know, um, left behind by your competitors or other market entrants in your sector that are more agile, innovative, perhaps smaller now, but uh, are, I guess, data and analytics native around what they do. Everything they do is permeated by data analytics insight. The other risk is um, that people are concerned about is the actual security of the information, privacy and data. Um, there are enough ways in this day and age to actually leverage that data in an anonymized way that protects individuals, you know, rights uh, and their privacy uh, that gives you insights and enables your organization to, to, to leverage the benefits I outlined a minute ago. Uh, so there's, 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 there's no need anymore to have that level of concern or fear. And in some cases it was downright fear about doing things with data because they were worried about some privacy breach. It's short, it happens from time to time, but there's, that's not no reason why you shouldn't be doing it. There are enough tools and safeguards in, pro, in place that you know you can actually 
get get that sort of leverage, those benefits, without putting your organisation at risk from breaching a regulation and being fined or at reputational risk because you can't be trusted to hold personal data. And um, I'm so glad you kind of touched on that because privacy and consent is certainly an issue that we, we can't avoid talking about. And we obviously, we have GDPR from a couple of years ago. Like As more people move online, as there's more data online, how do you see this evolving? Um, well, we've, we, we, had, we had the old GDPR and other privacy um, provisions that were progressively ro rolled out over the last, you know, best part of the last decade. Um, but most, most organisations, so most governments are now seeing the access to data and, and and providing access to even their data to third parties, businesses, both large and small, as being advantageous to the way services are delivered to to, to you know to their constituents. Um, even even the the federal and other privacy commissioners in in Australia have been working on, in many cases, implemented frameworks that allow people to access federal government you know data interrogate it, leverage it for insights and that without breaching uh, individual privacy uh, concerns. And I think that's really positive. And I think a lot of organisations actually don't, are not aware of um, how proactive privacy commissioners have been to actually try and ensure that data with the right framework around it is fairly readily accessible and can be exchanged. Um, yeah, and I think that's a, big, that's a big opportunity that a lot of people have missed. And there are there are literally rivers and rivers of data out there that are available for next to nothing that can be interrogated to give you insights to your business alongside the data you you already collect that in many cases is not is not being exploited. So quite clearly, that that flow of data isn't going to stop. In fact, it's it's just going to flow even faster in future. Yeah. Um, and looking forward. So obviously we've got data right that's being implemented in Australia. You've mentioned that there's plenty of open source or cloud-based tools to aggregate and make sense of that data. How do you see this playing out for consumers? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an excellent way to sort of bring together the, the conversation we've had because, you know, there, 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 are two, there are two issues. There's data that's anonymised or publicly available data that's been anonymised by the government that protects individuals. Um, and in, increasingly, there are tools that are, enable organisations to anonymise the data so they're protecting themselves from any breaches. Um, there's other data that um, has personal information about individuals and an increasing number of end user licence agreements and that allow consumers to opt in or opt out on, uh, um, you know, allowing an organisation to have a more personalised approach to how they provide services and, and products and, and deliver insights to that individual. Um, Still, people are quite nervous about that, and understandably. Um, and some of that's a demographic issue because there are a lot of people in their late teens, early twenties, who have a lot less concern around, you know, you know, giving up their identity if they're going to get, you know, quid pro quo. They're going to get um, so a return in terms of features and benefits of those services and products. Um, but it has to be a quid pro quo. So if an organisation is looking at embarking upon having more access to an individual's data and being even more targeted um, and getting and looking at them to sign some end user agreement that permits them to do so within certain constraints, then they have to be extremely careful and make sure that, they, that it's a quid pro quo. They are actually giving up something and they're giving a much better service, quality of product or whatever for the for the um, for the end user opting in and enabling to, them to leverage their their, their data. But uh, but there's no doubt in my mind, increasingly people, particularly as that 
as, as that millennial and, and you know and and the Gen X and Gen Y generations mature and become more comfortable with giving giving to get from a data sharing perspective, um, it'll be more prevalent. I think um, services and that being even more customised to individuals right down to you know their household and and people who live within their household and you know what their personal preferences are. Um, there's still a long way to go on that front. But the journey has already begun. If you look at some of the end user licensing agreements now. And and um and I think you and I have kind of also discussed. I have a six year old, and she's already highly um, used to that level of personalization from kids YouTube. So now when she's watching the analog TV, and she's got no control over what she can watch when she what and when she watches it, she gets quite frustrated. So I think there's this um thinking about it not only as a transaction, but there's also going to be an expectation of that kind of give and take. I'll give you information if you give me that personalization. As those consumers who might be six now, one day will be the consumers in like 15 years. And, and yeah, that's unquestioned. And, and actually some of those six-year-old consumers are going to be consumers probably a lot quicker than they or their parents realize it as they as they get into their, in their early to mid-teens. Um, and I think there are probably a lot of analog or digital TVs out there with thumbprints in the middle where young kids have been pushing them thinking it's an interactive iPad that's on YouTube to be able to fast forward or change change tra track, change channel. Uh, and, and that really is, um, you know, ju just as the banks, you know, um, had to play catch up because customers, but banks for most of their life, most of the last century really defined the customer service. You, you understood customer service from going into a, you know, an analogue, a bricks and mortar bank. Um, the advent from the you know, early to mid-90s, a lot more online businesses, they just, they defined what customer service was all about and the banks had to play catch up and in some cases are still catching up. Um, this next generation of consumers are going to have expectations around their customer service and how targeted, like your daughter, the videos that she consumes are to their own personal interests, tastes and, and career. Um, so there's a lot, there's still a lot of opportunity a lot of development and evolution to go over the next decade. And do you think we're already thinking that far ahead or, or is the, the thinking around how you tap into data a little bit more short term? Um, I think I, I think some of the, you know, the, the, the digital native, the data analytics native type organisations have got that sort of built into their DNA and they're always looking for ways to improve the customer experience. Um, for others that have been around a lot longer and don't have that inculcated in, into their DNA, it's going to be a, a much longer journey and they will always be questioning, is this the right thing are we do, that we're doing? Whereas for some of those more innovative startups, and even those so-called startups that are now generating 160 billion US dollars in revenue like Google, um, it's part of their core DNA and, and they'll always be challenging themselves about how they can use data insights better to, prevent, to, to, to provide a better customer service, to provide more services to their um, enterprise clients as well as us as end users, but also how they interact with their own suppliers and that. So again, they will have a significant role over the next decade or, or more, I think, um, in, in managing and setting expectations about how we consume products and services based upon data insights. There's, there's no doubt in my mind, there's a long way to go uh, in terms of that quality of service and other organisations, you know, picking up, uh, picking up, the, taking up the mantle and um, and leveraging data analytics uh, as well as some of those platforms do. So what I'm really kind of hearing is um, the future is coming. 
Um, it's going to be data-driven. But if you focus on it as being a mutually beneficial transaction, there's a lot of really exciting opportunities. So, Ian, thank you so much for your time. If anyone would like to reach out to you, um, say, on LinkedIn, you're, you're happy to continue having these conversations? Absolutely, yeah. Always, yeah. always keen to hear from people and answer their questions and share, share insights. Thanks for your time, Therese. It's really, I've really enjoyed it as well. It's much appreciated. Awesome. Thanks, Ian. Thank you. If you liked this podcast and would like to hear more, you can find and subscribe to Grant Thornton Australia on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.